Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And I'm Fred Lucas, Daily Signal's White House correspondent. This week, we are discussing tariffs and their long and tumultuous history in the United States. We will also discuss the legacy of William F. Buckley, the man who launched the modern conservative movement. And that comes from the Broadway hit Hamilton, the, the music about a brash New Yorker who was determined to make his country great and is a strong advocate for infrastructure and one that strong American industry. Hamilton believed that the best way to do that is to have strong tariffs. And in the case of Alexander Hamilton, uh, America's first Treasury Secretary, he wanted uh, tariffs primarily as a revenue source. This was before we had heavy federal tax burdens in the country. Um, later on, we, we did see uh, this progress with uh, Henry Clay, that great statesman from the great state of Kentucky, uh, in which he promoted his American system and of uh, bridges, roads, canals, which would be funded by tariffs. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. This this debate over tariffs, of course, is so uh, obviously contentious issue here in the in the twenty first century. But it was a contentious contentious issue from really day one. I mean, this really kind of was a dividing point between two parties, between Hamilton's party and the Federalists and and more Thomas Jefferson's party, the so-called Republicans of his era, small R Republicans, the Jeffersonians. And, you know, this was kind of a a ferocious battle from day one when, when Hamilton released his very famous report on manufacturers that mentioned uh, using tariffs for revenue. And, of course, Americans at that time were used to very, very small government compared to what we are today. Mm-hmm. This was this was pretty controversial at the time, a country that in some ways was thought of itself as devoted to free trade. Uh, for a country to, to start slapping on some tariffs was pretty controversial, wouldn't you say, Fred? Right, right. And and it was uh, – yeah, and, and that, that was where we saw you know, Thomas Jefferson. He didn't want too much government power at the federal level, at the national level to start with. That, that was the major divide between he and uh, Alexander Hamilton, who was, yeah, as I said, the brash New Yorker who wants to make America great. It, it, in, in that case, not again. America was very new at the time, so uh, he, he wanted to make. He believed in a strong industrial system. That is what we. That is the argument we are hearing out of the White House right now from President Trump, who is pushing tariffs. Well, well, it is interesting the kind of development of the rhetoric on on tariffs and trade mm-hmm. because Hamilton. I mean, of course, those who are in favor of high tariffs have always pointed to Hamilton through history, but Hamilton himself has a little bit of a complicated list uh, history with tariffs because, as you mentioned before, in many ways this was for primarily, primarily for revenue. Right. The, the federal government was taking in very little revenue. We had a mountain of debt that was coming from the Revolutionary War in which states were basically being buried by this avalanche of debt. I mean, it was really destructive to this country in its early years. I mean, we've heard the, 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 uh, the phrase, it's not worth a continental. Well, that comes from the fact that the currency had been depreciated so much during the American Revolution that Hamilton saw a need for some kind of uh, constant revenue source, and tariffs were among these. And, of course, that was uh, politically unpalatable for, for some. Uh, but 
to a certain extent, I mean, that, that debate kind of moved on. I mean, Hamilton talked about protecting infant industries, but future uh, protectionists and those who favor tariffs uh, their rhetoric started to change to, well, we need to protect industries. We need to protect this industry. We need to protect that industry. Steel and, we, and aluminum being today. And steel debate. and aluminum <laughs> being today. I, I right. thought um, there was this really great uh, article in uh, The American Conservative by Robert Mary, who's a uh, presidential historian, who kind of uh, talked about this issue and talked about kind of the development of the trade debate. And he he talked about some of the first stirrings of this of this trade debate, and he said America's first great protectionist political figure was Alexander Hamilton, George Washington's Treasury Secretary. And compared to later mercantilist politicians in our history, Hamilton wasn't even that much of a protectionist. His original U.S. tariff bill imposed an average taxation level of just 8.5% on imported goods. And Hamilton argued that any protection encompassed in those duties, as opposed to revenue requirements, should be discontinued as soon as protected industries establish themselves in the American economy. I think we talked about this a little earlier today, uh, Fred, how a tax, once once instated, doesn't seem to, uh, doesn't seem to go away once it's put into play. Um, so this debate really morphed through the through the 19th century and uh, led to, I would say, one of the most dramatic political confrontations in our country's history. The first kind of signs that maybe a, a civil war was on the horizon. I know you've written a lot about this in the past, certainly in your your book, but talk about this this major tariff of the 1820s okay. that really caused so much political controversy. Yeah, I, I did write about this in my book, uh, Tainted by Suspicion, uh, when detailing the 1824 election and then the aftermath of that. But uh, in, in this case... Uh, President John Quincy Adams, um, if you want to do another parallel, also a Northeastern president who liked tariffs. Uh, but he uh, was facing off against uh, many in Congress who did not want this uh, uh, a whole tariffs package. And they loaded it down with a lot of poison pills, uh, thinking that the president would never sign this. Uh, well, John Quincy Adams basically... Uh, from his strategic standpoint, I think he wanted tariffs badly enough that he's, he signed it, uh, said Congress can fix the details later. Um, that was not a politically good move. Uh, he already had somewhat of a stillborn presidency because of the circumstances of 1824. Uh, that hurt him much worse. Uh, of course, Jackson came roaring in in the big 1828 rematch between the two, and uh, Jackson, not a fan of tariffs uh, in particular. Uh, Jackson also a supporter of uh, states' rights for the most part, but not to the degree of his vice president, John C. Calhoun, uh, who believed that states should be able to nullify tariffs. Yeah, it's really uh, it's really a fascinating debate because Jackson was, uh, you could say, a little bit of a moderate on on the tariff issue. Mm-hmm. And, and during his campaign, you know, he on one side to the to the protectionists, he sounded like a protectionist. To the free wow. trader, free traders, he sounded like a free trader. I would say, you know, his policies were generally pro free trade, but he also believed in obeying the laws that was passed. And uh, and John C. Calhoun, of course, got into this this confrontation and and over the tariff of abominations, as they called the. 1828 tariff, and South Carolina actually tried to 
nullify uh, this tariff law. And of course, Jackson had this very famous toast, which he's very well known for, is you know, our federal union, it must be preserved, which he said at a convention with a lot of other, you know, as you could say, pro-states rights uh, politicians. Uh, but you know, this was kind of Jackson's idea that you know he believed in, in limited government, but that ultimately he believed in, in the union as well. But I mean, this got this this debate got very much heated. I mean, it really was. Uh, to a certain extent, a preview of the animosity and secession crisis well, before the Civil War. Right, 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 and uh, that's that is. Uh, I mean, there there could have potentially been war in this case had, had they not come to an agreement. They not had they not a, a compromise uh, drew drew back and changed the tariff. Somewhat, and made it less abominable. I, I, you might say. The, the, there were some definitely some very dramatic moments uh, in this in this debate. I, I do know one story. It was funny. This South Carolina in particular was very uh, very much agitated. They were kind of leading the charge on nullification. They were agitated, especially by some of these apparently sugar tariffs. And the, the governor of South Carolina at the time, his name was was James Hamilton. Uh, apparently, had some of his goods as sugar. Hamilton. Another Hamilton does not no relation to Alexander Hamilton. This one did not like tariffs. Uh, no relation to Alexander Hamilton. Uh, so federal authorities tried to uh, basically confiscate some of his goods that he didn't want to pay tariffs on when it came to the harbor. And he yelled out uh, that I know that all these good men of South Carolina would die for that sugar. So of course he got the nickname uh, Sugar Jimmy, and was a little bit of a little bit of a punchline because of you know who who on earth would die for sugar, uh, but right. certainly it shows the the level of uh, animosity in the in this debate can sometimes be intense. I mean this is sometimes people's livelihoods at stake. Uh, there is a, a a deep debate over you know where our trade policies are, the the difference between free trade and protectionism. This country's kind of kind of gone through both and had neither. Uh, we've kind of gone through through both sides of this but you know this this 1828 debate was not the end of the trade debate at all i mean this continued throughout the 19th century uh, especially as you get into the late 19th century where to a certain extent you could think of kind of a reverse of american politics today the republican party was the party of protectionism and tariffs Mm -hmm. And the Democrats tended to favor free trade. Can you talk yeah, about that? Uh, well, well, through um, well, there there was this period uh, after James K. Polk. He had been probably to that point a, a strong free trader. Uh, tariffs came back in uh, to vote as well as taxes to, I mean, for crying out all to pay for a civil war. So that was kind of <laughs> necessary. Uh, protectionist policies were in place for a while. Grover Cleveland, uh, there was this interlude with Grover Cleveland in which he tried to draw back a, a northerner because this was largely a regional issue. Grover Cleveland, a Democrat, uh, came in to try to get rid of tariffs. He could only get so far with that. Uh, however, Benjamin Harrison had a strong campaign issue on reimposing more tariffs. Um, and I write about this a little bit and tainted by suspicion as well uh, in the chapter on the 1808 election. But uh Harrison uh, pushed tariffs uh, while after Harrison uh, won that election in 1888. Um, the Ways and Means Committee chairman, by the name of William McKinley, uh, crafted a strong uh, tariffs package, and uh, it, it actually excluded the import or had the effect of excluding some uh, the imports of some products into the United States. But uh, I, I guess then we go into the uh, bit of a. What some people would call today a flip-flop, uh, <laughs> a more positive way of saying it would be evolving on the issue as after President McKinley became 
after Chairman McKinley became President McKinley in the uh, early 20th century. Yeah, it is It is interesting because McKinley at the time was known as a kind of apostle of protectionism. He was one of the country's foremost protectionists. He was one of its most articulate defenders. And as really the, the, the grand old party, Republican Party of that time, was fervently pro-protection. They, they saw this as promoting business, protecting industries. It's interesting, uh, a very young Winston Churchill uh, – who actually didn't favor Republicans at the time, didn't like the American Republican Party because he thought they were the protectionist party. Mm. And Churchill himself was actually quite a free trader. He associated the, the GOP with protectionism. But McKinley really was, you could say, the harbinger of this sort of, not totally party flip, but as you said, an, an evolution in the parties. And his, in his last speech that he made uh, at the, 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 the Pan Am Exposition uh, in Buffalo, this is just before he was actually shot and assassinated, uh, he kind of signaled that there would be a shift in his party's policies, a shift within the GOP. And uh, he had a very interesting statement. This is at the end of his speech. He said, the period of exclusiveness is over. The expansion of our trade and commerce is the pressing problem. Commercial wars are unprofitable. A policy of goodwill and friendly trade relations will prevent reprisals. Reprocity treaties are in harmony with the spirit of the times. Measures of retaliation are not. So what McKinley was talking about is he was afraid that in, a, in, a, in an era in which global trade was dominant, the United States was a growing superpower, really becoming you know this really mighty uh, economic republic, that trade wars weren't going to be a good thing for a country that was so dependent on trade, that was selling goods all over the world. <laughs> and um, I, I think uh, some of the... Uh some of what he said there, reciprocity, um, we hear that a lot from President Trump as he's trying to push tariffs or at least make an argument. He says he wants free and reciprocal trade. Uh, he said that over and over again. Uh, we don't know for sure, but I mean, it looks like what possibly what a lot of folks who are free traders are hoping he's doing here is trying to get leverage for negotiations from other countries to maybe drop their tariffs, maybe make uh, making a more free trade zone. Trump has argued that America would win a trade war because the tariffs out of other countries are so high. Absolutely. It's it's interesting because this kind of opened up a period in which there were tariffs were reduced. There was a general reduction in tariffs during this time. And interestingly, it was kind of a bipartisan thing because a lot of progressives during this era, including those like Woodrow Wilson, were actually tended mm -hmm. toward free trade. Well, now, it's that was complicated. Part of, um, Wilson was an internationalist in general, though, so I, th I think that kind of fit in with that larger it, view. It certainly did, but I, I would call this part of a, a general reduction in the size mm -hmm. of government. I think progressives mm -hmm. had their own viewpoint, which is that, of course, at the, at the same time, Americans were very much into this idea of prohibition. They wanted to uh, end alcohol sales in the United States, and they wanted to end, which would potentially cut off the revenue coming in from excise taxes and things like this. And a lot of progressives, really what they wanted was to end tariffs so they could switch to an income tax. <laughs> so yeah. an even bigger tax regime that they felt that they could manipulate more to redistribute well from the haves to the have-nots. So it, it did create a more mm -hmm. favorable free trade environment, but at the same time, we got all new we got all new taxes to kind of make up for it, and I would say mm -hmm. even more so. <laughs> right, and 
this is as far as as best we know, this is not what Hamilton had in mind. <laughs> he, he he did see the uh, the father of terror. So if you want to say that, he he saw this as the primarily the the way to uh, gain revenue, not burdensome taxation on the Americans. I, I would say uh, if you don't jump into the Republican Democrat divide on this historically, a lot of that has to do with. Um, Republicans, I mean, going back to Lincoln, even Republicans have been the the pro business party, uh, and the pro business position in America used to essentially be uh, to have tariffs, to have a level of protectionism for American business. Uh, today, it's more the Chamber of Commerce, uh, other business groups, NFIB, uh, are very heavily favored towards free trade because. That, that's that's a more favorable pro-business position, uh, whereas labor unions want more protectionism. Well, it is interesting how some of the rhetoric on this has flipped. As you said, I mean, at one time, I mean, this this debate between I mean, going back, I mean, we, we talked a little about the tariff of abominations and early debates between, you know, Andrew Jackson's party and whatnot. There was actually a faction of Andrew Jackson's party that were hardcore free traders, the, the so-called Loco Focos. It's a crazy <laughs> name, uh, but there was a, basically, I would say, an almost kind of libertarian faction of the Democratic Party at the time that argued that for, that – uh, protectionism was actually more or less uh, cronyism for big business and that it would hurt the the average worker, that it was not pro-worker. I think you get a lot of rhetoric these days that tariffs are favorable to the workers. Uh, but in many ways, some of the rhetoric, certainly in the 19th century, is that tariffs were damaging to workers. The American worker would be harmed. A lot of the goods he would purchase would be, of course, more expensive, that this was basically just a way to uh, prop up big businessmen. Uh, it was a form of, I guess you could say, crony capitalism. Which, you know, of course, many debates in tariffs, uh, certainly late 19th century, were on this crony capitalism issue. I mean, how much are these tariffs put in place for the purpose of benefiting the United States or to benefit a specific industry or some lobbyists who have a lot of power? That's exactly essentially the debate now, which would it would and and the president's being forthcoming about this. He's saying it's to benefit the U.S. steel industry and uh, to benefit the U.S. aluminum industry. So, Absolutely. I mean, the United States is not likely, even with you know current debate over tariff levels, not likely to return to earlier levels of tariffs, which right. were actually very, very high. And, you know, there was well, one in particular I think we, we wanted to talk about, which is, you could say, maybe the most famous or infamous tariff in American was, history was Smoot-Hawley, which was right. passed in 1930 at kind of the harm, high mark of the, the Great Depression. which was, uh, as much of an abomination as the 1828 tariff, maybe. It's really an incredible thing because, yes. of course, you know, this is just following the crash of 1929. Mm-hmm. You, you had a Republican president, Herbert Hoover, who was at the time a little skeptical of passing this, this essentially massive protectionist uh, package. It was at a time that the American economy was incredibly fragile. And, and and I think that, I mean, I think there was a, a list of about a thousand economists who wrote a letter to the president saying, don't do this, Mr. President. You're going to you're going to damage the economy. You're going to send us into something, uh, a very dark place. And of course. And it did. <laughs> and of course and it did. That delivered FDR and the New Deal because of this tariff largely. 
It, it is interesting because, you know, some of FDR's rhetoric actually sounds kind of fiscally conservative at the time, especially when he was running for president, you know, talking about, you know, this this looming debt and, of course, these, these tariffs which had done, uh, you know, so much damage to the American economy. Uh, in which, uh, uh, of course, you know, of course, we had the New Deal and things like that. The economy didn't really turn around. I mean, basically for a decade, not until really World War II and after did the economy turn around. But in large part, it, it set off a series of trade wars globally. And there are some, there are some certainly, I, I'm not entirely in their camp, but some who say that in some ways this you know, was basically a foreshadowing of the coming World War II, in which a lot of countries became aggressive, their economies were in bad shape, and they started to become aggressive to their neighbors. It maybe have propped up uh, countries like Nazi Germany and imperialist Japan. So global was, consequences. Uh, it, it was after World War II, by the way, which you had the Cold War, which kind of pushed free trade a little bit more. You had GATT uh, agreement, which morphed into the WTO uh, among uh, democratic capitalist nations, democratic or capitalist nations, they weren't always the same during that time. But, um, but yeah, and, and then after, I, it was actually after the Cold War, you saw a little bit more of a protectionist argument, a little bit during that time. Uh, there was a, a point in which uh, Americans were concerned about uh, the rising uh, power of Japanese products in the United States. Uh and we're pressing Reagan on that. Reagan sort of took the McKinley uh, view I, I, on on the uh, reciprocity side, actually, and um, and he actually worked out more diplomatic agreements, uh, having voluntary import quotas and so forth, as opposed to getting into a trade war. Because uh, Reagan knew that's one bad economic policy, and two. He was trying to win the Cold War, and he didn't want to alienate allies. Absolutely. So I, I think this kind of leads into kind of the, the modern tariff debate. And you know, tariff policy has changed uh, in, in how we implement it over time, whereas in the 19th century, certainly under the original Constitution, this was considered more of a legislative responsibility. I mean, there was a lot of log rolling Congress. There were a lot of debates there. But it really switched to being more of a presidential prerogative, certainly after a 1962 law passed, which gave the president basically broad authority to pass tariffs. Essentially, this is what we're seeing today with the debate with President Donald Trump. And I think there are a lot of people, certainly now in Congress, like Senator Mike Lee, who says that the executive does have too much power in this, this sense, that the president, it should be, it should be Congress that's deciding these tariff laws not an executive like what we see now. Um, so I, I think this this has, has definitely changed this debate over the last uh, 50 years or so in which, I mean, look, there are some who argue that, you know, tariffs are good or tariffs are bad, but there are other issues at stake here, not just the tariffs laws themselves, but how exactly we pass these things. Or is it is it a wise thing to have the president essentially decide these policies? So is, it, is it more important to have uh, elected representatives? Uh, that are handling our our trade pro, uh, policies. So, I think that's definitely going to be a debate that we start having now: is whether or not we've made the wrong decision to to essentially hand off this authority to a president. You know, whether or not tariffs are popular or not, they they actually seem to be fairly popular uh, among the people. Uh, whether or not it's the president who ultimately gets aside what tariffs yeah. we have and what we don't. Right, right, and that's a separation of powers argument, a much bigger issue in itself but uh i i would say though on on and the contemporary debate that we're having right now it's 
Don, this is not a surprise to anyone who watched Donald Trump during the campaign. He he talked about tariffs, uh, talked about uh, almost as much as he talked about the border wall. So. It does seem to be one if there if there's one really consistent theme throughout Trump's public career is that he's always been a bit of a trade skeptic. I right. would say, and that he's always you know talked about trade deficits, you know, a problem with China, uh, taking jobs, and he's been fairly consistent. I mean, through his entire public career, he's talked about this issue, and certainly I think a, a certain element of his base has appreciated that. He's, in fact, that. talked about this longer than he's talked about immigration. <laughs> and it has been something that he's remained relatively stable on. So there's a question is, you know, if he doesn't do something on trade or certainly negotiate better deals, as he's, he's apt to say, you know, mm-hmm. he'll actually not be uh, upholding is promised to voters. Now, how that actually takes place, you know, what exactly it means by negotiating a better deal, you know, that's obviously that's up to the president. But it, it does, you know, of course, uh, Americans, I think, want what's what's best for their country. They want, you know, a free uh, flow of, of goods and to them to themselves and to the world and to be making money and doing success and being successful. Wow. So, you know, whether or not that means we're slapping on uh, tariffs on aluminum or we're actually opening up barriers with other com- countries, which is you know, a big part of this debate often lost in this whole thing is, you know, how we get other countries to start opening up their borders so that Americans can sell their goods to them and actually start making more money and do better for the American workers. Well, I, I think, I, as you said, tariffs are popular until the price of products start going up. And <laughs> I, I, I think uh, what we've seen the argument against this is that more American companies buy steel than make steel. And those products the prices increases will get passed along to consumers. If that starts happening, then um, I think we'll they'll be less popular, and um, you know it's not going to be a, a regional issue anymore, which it hasn't been throughout the 20th century. It's not a north-south divide. It's largely been a business-labor divide, and but but now we're it's a. Uh, the parties seem to be somewhat flipping again, as, as we've talked about before. So yeah, and, and we'll we'll really see if 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 Trump's ideas about trade have a, a kind of trickle down effect to you know the conservative base, the conservatives around the country, whether other general Republicans or maybe even some Democrats, even some uh, Bernie pro Bernie Sanders Democrats are actually more on Trump's side when it comes to now they may have a very different reason for wanting tariffs but they are more on Trump's side than maybe a traditional Republican so it does change a lot of the dynamics within the parties uh, in ways that we haven't seen before and you could say in many ways maybe this is how President Donald Trump was able to win in places non-traditional strongholds of the Democrat Party like Pennsylvania where protectionism is a more popular issue it allowed him to win over some voters he couldn't have in the past and really change the political dynamic between between the parties certainly michigan i think and when by the margin that he did in ohio i i think was a shocking eight point margin which is that's all traditionally been the closest state uh, in presidential races so absolutely well speaking of uh the debates about conservatism and and the future of of the conservative movement and where it's going uh we're gonna we're gonna kind of switch gears a little bit to talk about uh really the the man who uh created the conservative movement in this country and we're gonna we're gonna switch to talk to uh to uh, our, our editor-in-chief and and uh and have a discussion about that
so to change things up a little bit uh, here on the right side of history, uh, we're going to talk a little about the legacy um, of William F. Buckley Jr. here. And we're joined by Rob Bluey, who is the editor-in-chief of The Daily Signal. And thanks for joining us, Rob. Really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Jarrett and Fred. It's great to be on again. So this is kind of an important anniversary because it's now been 10 years since William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, died. And, of course, he left a, a, an awesome legacy for, for conservatives. I know for me personally, I, I when I was in college, I first kind of was introduced to con- the conservative intellectual movement through the writings of Buckley. And I know for many young conservatives, he is this kind of towering figure. Can you kind of explain his legacy, Rob, and uh, this really special event we had here at the Heritage Foundation? That's right, uh, Jared. We and I have a similar experience to you, which I hope we can talk about. So we we had an event, a wonderful event at Heritage in partnership with the National Review Institute, um, which is really formed to help carry out Buckley's legacy and make sure that uh, conservatives and Americans of today don't forget about it, even though he has been been gone for 10 years. And the event featured some National Review editors, uh, Catherine Lopez, longtime editor of National Review Online, John O'Sullivan, who uh, actually succeeded Buckley as, as editor-in-chief of National Review, Matt Continetti, the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon, and uh, Stephen Hayes, who's a Fox News contributor and the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard. So even those who are competitors, if you will, with National Review had such fond things to say about Buckley, and not only his contributions to journalism, because in many ways he forged a path that uh, that has led to the explosion of conservative media outlets that we have today, but also his shaping of the conservative movement more broadly. I mean, he was such a strong advocate for the fusionist ideals that, uh, that we hold so dear as conservatives. Conservatives, and also articulating them in a way that had that broad appeal. Yeah, that, that's something that that was always notable to me about Buckley is he brought together so many different uh, various factions that you could say were on the right that didn't know, in a sense, that they were in league with one another. He brought together libertarians, more traditional conservatives, and anti-communists together to kind of form this movement against the the march of the left. You know, he always talked about. It's funny here on the right side of history. He always talked about standing athwart history, yelling stop, and, and that really is kind of the, the legacy that that he's left behind in growing a conservative movement that, especially mid-20th century, was just non-existent. There was nobody questioning uh, the policies of the New Deal. There was nobody going after uh, the, the atrocities of communism and things like this. And, and Buckley really brought this together and, and produced, I have to say, an incredible amount of work in his lifetime. The sheer number of books, I think he published over 50 books uh, and articles, uh, You know, leaves a, a tremendous legacy for us today. I I know for myself personally, I read much of Buckley when I was in college, his God and Man at Yale, which he wrote, I believe, as a 25-year-old. He was very, very young, uh, really explained kind of the, the takeover of the left on college campuses. And he kind of wrote this as a warning to alumni, but it, it reverberates to us today. I mean, these debates he was talking about then are so familiar to us in 2018. They certainly are. And it's wonderful that... that- The National Review Institute and others have gone on to preserve a lot of them, so we haven't lost this history, and we can look back at this and really reflect on what Buckley was saying. Uh, The debates with Gore Vidal and others that um, that that so captured some of the debates that were prominent back what 50 years ago and have resurfaced in many cases today. Um, But I think that the other thing is the the notable significance that I heard from the panelists at the event was not only was Buckley seen as this this great journalist, this this editor of National. Review, but at a time when conservatives were really feeling down uh, after the 
loss, the significant loss of, of Barry Goldwater uh, in 1964. You had a situation where conservatives didn't know if there would ever be an opportunity like that. And here you have William F. Buckley Jr. running for mayor of New York City. <laughs> and actually, although he didn't win, uh, ter- getting uh, different factions of the city to turn out in support of him because of the ideas that he campaigned on. And I think it was the way that he articulated those ideas that led to things like Ronald Reagan and his ascent in California and uh, and eventually the presidency. And of course, Buckley, throughout uh, the time that he was alive, um, was able to do so in a very effective way, Jared, as you said. Yeah, it, it is really remarkable. He was, in many ways, especially in the media, a man standing alone against, I mean, he was surrounded by the left. I mean, his show firing line was such an unusual thing to see this man who stood for conservatism when that was a, a bad word in this country. Of course, you know, a generation later, liberalism became a bad word in this country in large part because of the efforts of people like William F. Buckley, who would go on TV and give an articulate defense of conservative values that people just weren't hearing from other places. And he was able to do battle with some of the leading left-wing intellectuals of his era. I mean, he brought on people on his show who were on the hard left. He would bring on communists and debate them. He just was absolutely fearless. And the people that he would debate and talk to, I think that was a remarkable thing, especially, you know, as a young conservative who's been in an environment with a lot of other people on the left, it was remarkable to see this man you know, standing up and saying, well, I disagree and, and I dissent. Uh, so this was kind of a remarkable legacy, I think, that, that he's left to us today. I think one thing a lot of people talk about now, 10 years after his death, is is there another William F. Buckley out there? Is there somebody who carries on this flame as the, the Buckley of the modern era? That's that's really, really a challenging question. And I, I, I don't know that there's a single person that, that maybe embodies the, the, the same um, abilities that, that Buckley had. But I think one of the things that was evident to me in hearing from so many of the people uh, at, at the Heritage and National Review Institute event was the influence that he had on future generations. So you talked about your experience in college. I feel like that's when I first was introduced to National Review and some of the ideas um, that were certainly influenced by Buckley. And Matt Continetti of the Washington Free Beacon talked about his his experience uh, with Buckley, going to Buckley's home in New York City and uh, what it was like to sit next to him and have him serve as a mentor to this young journalist who today, I think in many ways... uh, and, and by the way, we should note that the Washington Free Beacon carries the initials WFB in honor of Buckley. That's right. Uh, so in many ways, it's still influencing people like that. So, Jared, I think you're right. Um, there are people who, who are still benefiting greatly from the legacy of Buckley. Yeah. Uh, and, and you brought this up earlier in terms of uh, along the same lines, uh, the media universe that we have today, the alternative media. Um, uh, could, could you talk a little bit more about that, how he influenced that landscape and changed the entire media landscape, which was more progressive, more New Deal at the time that he came along. That's right. I mean, there were so few options for for conservatives, maybe people who didn't even know they were conservative because there just wasn't – the media environment at the time National Review was created uh, was vastly different. I mean, I, I used to have the, the opportunity to work for Human Events, for instance, one of the oldest conservative newspapers, which, again, at the time it was created, uh, there just weren't that many media yeah. outlets I, out there. I, I, at that one point, point it was basically Human Events and National Review. That's right. And that was it, right? 
That's right. And look at how many we have today right. with, the, with the Internet, which I think is great. We all recognize the benefits, particularly for the Daily Signal, of being able to reach that audience. But I think what Buckley did, Fred, is he was able to articulate very clearly um, on a range of issues, as Jared talked about, that, that captured uh, the hearts and minds of libertarians and anti-communists and traditional um, conservatives. And in a way, he gave them a platform that they could turn to. Uh, Catherine Lopez, for instance, talked about how when she was a, a young woman, uh, would often uh, rush to, to you know read the latest edition of National Review. And it really, I think, has uh, had a, a tremendous effect uh, and, and helped shape and guide not only our presidents, but uh, leaders across this country and probably the world for that matter. Yeah, and, and, and another, I mean, uh, we've seen this a little bit in the magazine uh, since President Trump's been elected, but uh, some of the columnists there who have been critical of the president have pointed out that it was founded at a time when conservatives were taking on a Republican administration and that of President Eisenhower, who was good on many issues, but he was largely continued much of the New Deal and well, and certainly there have been there have been lots of differences throughout the decades with Richard Nixon as well and right. George H. W. Bush and uh, and certainly with Donald Trump, uh, National Review famously in in the course of the 2016 campaign published its against Trump issue. Uh, they they certainly took a leading role. The president himself attacked <laughs> National Review. Um, but uh, as the Washington Post magazine recently put it, uh, we're, we really are in the in the perhaps the golden age of conservative magazines because mm-hmm. there are still so many of those. Public Publications out there, and it was so uh, tremendous to hear from a couple of the editors in chief uh, here at Heritage about how how they their outlook on it. And that's the one thing they're not just going to be propagandists for for the, the administration right. in power. They are going to challenge that administration on on issues like tariffs, where where conservative <laughs> principles differ with uh, uh, the, uh, the the president who's uh, per, perhaps. Um, Putting out policies that uh, are counter to that. Now, now, one final thing for you, for you, Rob. Before before we go, I think that one thing that I was I think is remarkable about Buckley is not just that he kind of increased the pot of conservatives who started to embrace these ideas, but the different kinds of people that started to embrace conservatism, especially when Buckley. I mean, when he ran for mayor, you know, he he reached out to urban Catholics who many times have been associated with the Democrat Party, with maybe progressive politics, and started to convince them that their ideas were actually in alignment with. Conservatism, not progressivism, is certainly not how it existed at the mid 20th century. I mean, can you talk about maybe about how conservatives today have that challenge to us to kind of reach out to new constituencies who don't understand the conservative message or, or have never heard it before? Well, it, it, it's a yeah, it's a, a daily challenge, and I think it's it's certainly one that that the Heritage Foundation's new president, Kay Coles James, talks to to us about frequently because as somebody who comes from a background, uh, low income background. Whose, whose you know father was abusive and whose mother was on welfare, uh, it's it's that particular t- individual who may not recognize that conservative policies would actually benefit them and help them in many ways in their life. Uh, and how do you reach them, right? I mean, that is the challenge because they're, they're, we live in a, a society – we were talking before this interview about Twitter and what would Buckley do with Twitter, for instance. <laughs> uh, how do you reach those audiences that consume all their information on a Facebook or an Instagram or aren't tuning in? Or certainly, not, they're not subscribing to publications like National Review. So I think we have to be creative as conservatives in how we 
uh, we broach that message and, and and bring it to those different communities. But I think that the most important thing, I think Buckley would, would believe this, is you have to be true to your principles. And I think that there are definitely creative ways to approach public policy, but as long as you have those first principles that you believe in and stand firm on, um, you, you're uh, certainly honoring his legacy and those who have come before us. My well, guess is that William F. Buckley would have had a big Twitter following even if he didn't tweet a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> for sure. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us on the, on the right side of history. Really appreciate you talking about William F. Buckley, the, the man we, we owe quite a bit to here in uh, in conservative media. So thank you very, very much. Thanks, Jerry. And we're going to leave you with some clips from the event. And uh, they come in this order. We have Lee Edwards, who's a conservative historian. We have Catherine Lopez, as I mentioned, the former editor of National Review Online. John O'Sullivan, a former editor of National Review. Uh, we have Stephen Hayes, the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, and Matt Continetti from the Washington Free Beacon. Here's a few things that they had to say about William F. Buckley. His most significant contribution to the conservative cause was the founding of the magazine National Review. But it was not just a magazine. It was the epicenter of something that did not exist until Bill Buckley came along, the modern American conservative movement. NR provided a public platform for champions of libertarian thought, traditionalist ideas, and of course, anti-communism. With Frank Meyer's help and how important that help was, Bill developed the idea of fusionism, a blending of the three major strains of conservatism and persuaded disputatious conservatives to stop fighting each other and focus on the real enemies, Soviet communism abroad and overweening government at home. So 10 years ago Tuesday, I announced on the on the corner on, on National Review Online that, that Bill had died. So for the the next days, people would would email me their their Bill Buckley stories. And this is on the point about him being intimidating and everybody's hero. And and so if you, you ran into him at the airport or he came to your campus or lots of people had lots of different stories um, and they all were about the same. He treated me so graciously. He treated me like I was the most important person in the world. I have no idea what I rambled on about, but he was so interested in it. And and um, some of the stories, and so everybody's story was about the same, it turned out, where, wherever they, they ran into him and whoever they were. Um, but but then some of the stories were incredible, including the the one man who said, I hope Christopher doesn't mind Christopher being his son, but I considered him a father because I didn't have a father growing up um, in the picture. But he was on TV, this man I respected every week. He was here, there he was in the pages of National Review. I could rely on him. Um, there were priests who told me that he, you know, you asked about faith, that he, he influenced their religious vocations because he talked about his faith um, so openly um, and confidently. Um, and so it, he, his, the testimonies people started pouring in were just testaments to you never know, you know what kind of influence you can have if you're um, being that aspirational figure that, <clears throat> that, that Matt was talking about. When you read Bill as a conservative, and remember we're reading him in rather discouraging circumstances most of our lives, you read him and you thought, this, they can never win. Against this kind of thing, they can never win. And that's very important because, after all, 
most of the time, the evidence suggested that they could win and were winning. And he, in a sense, by his writing, his wit, his independence, and the fact that you knew he was telling all kinds of truths and telling them honestly, but also wittily and incidentally, in a way that, in my view, is inimitable. I always discourage people trying to write like Bill because if you look at him, he had a corkscrew mind when it came to wit. It came at you in all kinds of different directions. So you couldn't really imitate him, but you could be inspired by him. Just to pick up on the point that Catherine made earlier, I mean, politics was only one part of, of, of who he was, and it certainly wasn't the most important part. It wasn't even close to the most important part. So I think that helps answer your question. And then the other, um, the other way I'd uh, address your question is that the debate, it seems to me, f for Bill Buckley was an end in and of itself. I mean, he ultimately he wanted to persuade people. He sought to persuade people. He spent most of his life trying to persuade people. But he loved the debate for the sake of the debate. And you could see that. I mean, you couldn't watch a firing line without understanding just how much he loved the process. And he loved the engagement. He loved the exchange of ideas. And you, you watch that, and you, you, you want to agree with him. I mean, you want to, you want to be part of what he's, he's promoting. And I think people, even people who, uh, with whom he had fierce debates over the years came to like him personally for precisely that reason. It's become, I mean, maybe one of the, the, the easiest cliches is that he was a happy warrior. I mean, I think that was in almost every single 10th anniversary uh, remembrance of, of his passing. Uh, but it's true. I mean, if it describes anybody, it, it describes him. And I think that people were drawn to him, um, many times his enemies, but also people within the conservative movement who might have had different views on an issue here or there, but broadly were fighting sort of in the same direction. The, the novelty of his personality was, in fact, the key to his appeal. And so I'm going to just quote him, because one of his weapons in this lifelong debate he waged against liberalism and communism was his wit. And I think, I think it's, it's, it's painfully obvious that it's missing from a lot of our debate now. Uh, some that I just came across. It's so easy. You can just kind of dip into the Buckley works and you find the one-liners, right? So interviewed by 60 Minutes a few days before Reagan was inaugurated, Morley Safer asked Bill Buckley, who comes from a family of 10 children, what would happen if there were a liberal Buckley. And Buckley, without missing a beat, said, I would pray for him. <laughs> uh, we all know the famous one where at the first press conference, when he ran for mayor of New York City, the reporters asked him, Mr. Buckley, what will you do if you win? And he said, demand a recount. <laughs> um, there was a Robert F. Kennedy, during his ascent, refused to go on firing line. And they asked, they asked Buckley, why do you think that is? And Buckley said, why does baloney resist the grinder? <laughs> I, I, just, I came off across another one. This is from 1978. He was at Cornell. He was giving a speech uh, as one of the, you know, his calendar was filled with speeches. He was constantly traveling, evangelizing. And a lefty student at Cornell after hearing his discourse on tax cuts, said, Mr. Buckley, have you ever gone hungry? And Buckley said, why, yes. 
Uh, my yacht experienced an unfortunate shortage of stuffed goose recently off Nassau. <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, you can't, it's hard to convey just how unique that was. <laughs> Well, that just about wraps it up. Thanks to everyone for joining us on The Right Side of History. All of the Heritage Foundation's podcasts are now featured on the Ricochet Audio Network. If you're coming to us from Ricochet, welcome. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and leave us feedback. If you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts, you can also check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the Daily Signal website. Also, take a look at the Daily Signal's Facebook page for when we air our next program. And if you are further interested in our work, check out my Twitter, at Jarrett Stepman, and Fred's Twitter handle, at FredLucasWH. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, executive produced by Jared Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.